Today's episode is sponsored by Alone in the Dark. The highly anticipated new reimagination by Pieces Interactive and THQ Nordic. Play as Edward Carnby or Emily Hartwood to explore your environments, fight monsters, solve puzzles, and uncover the true secret of Dorsetto Manor. Our favorite heroes are brought to life by Hollywood stars Jodie Comer of Killing Eve and David Harbour of Stranger Things, who lend not only their voices, but their appearance and their formidable acting skills to the brave protagonists. Experience a deep psychological story that goes beyond the realms of the imaginable, all dreamed up by Mikhail Hedberg, cult horror writer of Soma and Amnesia. The team at Pieces Interactive is supported by monster designer and legendary Guillermo del Toro collaborator Guy Davis, as well as doom jazz legend Jason Conan, who provides his eerie and haunting melodies for the right atmosphere. Alone in the Dark is available March 20th on PS5, Xbox Series XS, and PC. Pre-order your copy now and escape into the dark. Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. This week is one of those weird interval special episodes I do where we drift away from horror fiction and into something a little different. Sort of a horrific palate cleanser. This week, I wanted to talk to you about one of my favorite subjects. Creepy stories from anonymous Reddit users. The beauty and allure of Reddit for so many is that it's still fairly easy to remain anonymous. Unlike Facebook and Instagram and Twitter... You can keep a low profile and aren't expected or encouraged to post a million personal pictures or details of your life. Personally, I was excited to find Reddit years ago because my username doesn't really give away the fact that I'm a woman and I noticed I was treated way differently when the people I interacted with weren't actively trying to slide into my DMs or tear me down for being inferior. Now, if you aren't familiar with Reddit, it's fairly common for people to create what are known as throwaway accounts if they want to post something that they don't want being traced back to them. I know I said I like the anonymity of Reddit, but my own Reddit account is pretty easy to find, and I've posted it for friends and family to see the stories I used to write on No Sleep, so while it isn't my full name, it wouldn't be hard to figure out what my username is. So that's when throwaway accounts come in handy. They're used for things as innocent as embarrassing stories you don't want your current peers to know about all the way to deep, dark, life-ruining confessions. Throwaway accounts pop up on all subreddits, but you see them frequently on both the subreddit confession and ask Reddit if the question is more salacious than usual. Of course, the validity of these are hard to determine, though a few have actually been found to be true from the hard work of internet sleuths. Some of them have bred obsessions in the Reddit community, including the first throwaway account of tonight. Let's talk about user throwaway181718. The following was posted on Sunday, January 29th, 2017, in the subreddit Confession. It was titled, I Was In a Cult. Firstly, apologies for my anonymity. 
I didn't want this to get back to me, but I haven't told anyone about this. I need to get it off my chest. Three years ago, when I was in college, I was suffering with severe depression. I took medication and attended therapy and group therapy. One day, in my group therapy, our therapist told us that there's a man here to talk to us. For reasons, let's call him Bob. Bob was really energetic, really friendly and understanding. He spoke to us on our level, a bunch of vulnerable teenagers. He told us about a group therapy holiday where we go away over the summer holidays and do some cool things like rafting, rock climbing, etc. He explained that it was completely free because the college would pay for us to go, and it lasts five weeks. Not many people were interested, but I decided to ask him a few questions after the session. He told me that it was all about the adventure, making friends and having fun whilst continuing our therapy. I asked for some details off him, but he didn't have a card, so he asked for mine. Stupidly, I gave him my phone number, email address, and home address. Later that night, I was telling my parents about it. They seemed a little suspicious, but I was trying to convince them. Whilst we were talking, there was a knock at the door. It was Bob. My dad welcomed him in, and he spoke to both of them, explaining that it is good for my mental health, and it's also a lot of experiences, as well as completely free. After talking for a while, my parents agreed that I could go. They filled out some paperwork, and the next time I saw Bob was when I got on the coach, with lots of other people around my age. Bob was really enthusiastic, and everyone looked excited, albeit we were all having mental health issues. Bob explained that on our first day, we would be doing an adventure course and building a raft to help with teamwork with our fellow campers. We drove north to a walled-off campsite. It was huge. As we got off the bus, everyone had to go for a physical checkup. It was uncomfortable, but I assumed it was to make sure we could take part in the events. The doctor was very thorough. When we left, we couldn't find our suitcases, so we guessed that they were brought to our rooms. But when we got to our rooms, they weren't there either. I asked Bob, and he said we weren't allowed them, and we weren't allowed phones either. He asked for all our phones. Me and the other boys in my room refused, but then he said that it was in the contract we signed. Reluctantly, we all gave up all our possessions, and he gave us these ugly tracksuits to wear because we didn't want our nice clothes to get dirty. We did some activities, and they were fun. But then we all went for dinner. Before anyone started eating, one of the group leaders said that we should all pray. I'm not religious, and there was no indication that this was a religious group, so I was a bit confused. The group leader said that we should say thanks to the gods for bringing us all together. I thought this was weird, but assumed he was just being inclusive of everyone's religions. Later that night, we all went to bed. Whilst we were in bed, another group leader, let's call him Todd, came in and forced us all to stand up. We did, and he told us all off for sleeping in our boxers. He said that we should sleep in the tracksuits. We put our tracksuits on, and as soon as he left, we took them off again. It was summer, after all. The next few days were pretty much the same. There were some fun activities, but they were always shadowed by the group leaders acting weird and very strict. The boys and girls weren't allowed to talk to each other. When we went swimming, 
We went in our tracksuits. We were really only allowed to talk during these activities, and every meal we had to pray, and the leaders always said things like, the gods will show us the way to the end, and honestly, I was getting really creeped out. We did exciting activities, but we also had to have some more boring ones, like meditation. They also told us that if we wanted to stay after the five weeks, we could stay, and we could invite our families to live with us. One evening, I asked Bob if I could call home, just because I wanted to talk to my family. He said that my family was already told that I arrived safely, and I'm happy. I tried to argue it, but he was determined to not let me contact my family until the five weeks were up. I didn't know where they took my suitcase, so I had no way of contacting them. That evening, there was a campfire event. It was integrated with a group therapy session. I asked to use the bathroom in the main building and sneaked off. There was a small office that was empty and the lights were off, so I went in and used the phone to call my home phone. I told my mom what was happening, and she said that they would come and get me straight away. In the back of the office, there was another room filled with suitcases and a plastic box filled with phones. It took a while to find my phone, but I stuck it in my pocket and then tried to look for my suitcase. Whilst I was looking, Todd walked into the office and caught me. He practically dragged me out and sat me down in the hallway, yelling at me for disobeying orders. He said I was trying to get my clothes, and it was a sin to be proud or something. He took me back to the group, and told the other group leaders in front of everyone else. The group leaders were then angry at everyone, and started going over the rules. We were all sent to bed without dinner. In bed, I was on my phone texting my dad, who said they were arriving now. I made sure the other boys didn't see I had my phone. Eventually, my dad texted me something like, We are outside, come now. So I pretty much jumped out of bed and ran as fast as I could, past the group leaders who tried to stop me from running out the building. Down the dirt road to my mom's car at the edge of the campsite, the leaders chasing me. My dad got out of the car and locked me in the car with my mom. The group leaders were saying that I wasn't allowed to leave, that my parents signed a contract saying I can't leave until the five weeks are up. My dad refused, and they tried to open the doors to get me out. Somehow, my dad got back into the car, and the doors were locked before they could get me out, and my parents drove me home. At home, I told my parents everything. The next morning, Todd and some other group leaders were at my front door. My dad told them to go away as they still tried to get me to come back to the camp. But they wouldn't leave without me. My dad called the police, and the police escorted them away. We couldn't see them, but we knew they were watching. I pretty much didn't leave the house for the rest of the summer, and I was constantly peering out of my window. When college started again, I left the house on my own for the first time to go get the bus. And as I walked down the road, I could hear Todd and the others calling after me. I tried to run but there were around 10 of them. They surrounded me on the street. A few people came from their houses, heard the commotion, and I yelled for them to call the police. A few men came out and a fight started. I managed to run back to my house and lock myself in. The group leaders were arrested, but the next week, a new group would show up in my area. Eventually, we moved house. I stopped going to college and we had to start a whole new life. We don't live in witness protection, but we use fake identities to stop them from finding us. My parents were in contact with the college and the police. The college stopped funding the group, and the police told us that 
they would start an investigation and that Todd had killed himself whilst on bail. I don't know much more than that, but I hope that everyone in the group are safe. TLDR I escaped from a religious cult, and they chased my family out of our home. Of course, people were curious, many calling the post fake, some comparing it to the subreddit No Sleep. So on January 30th, the next day, throwaway181718 posted an update in the comments. Update. I never intended for this to be a potential way of exposing the group, and I didn't expect it to have such a huge and supportive reaction. As some of you have some questions, I'd like to answer them, but still, I wish to remain anonymous and not give away too much information. In response to all the questions about my phone, I didn't think it was worth mentioning that I turned it off before I handed it over. I haven't heard from any of the teenagers in the group since I left, and haven't heard from the leader since we moved house. There was an investigation a few years ago, and I don't know what has happened to the group. Some of you have guessed my country, but I still don't want to give away too much information about where I live. The reason I won't expose the group is because it would be interfering with the police investigation if it's still ongoing, and would bring more attention to myself. When I said we changed identity, I mean we unofficially have started using a new surname. Only our closest relatives know this. We didn't take out a restraining order because it would only lead to court cases and a potential threat to our family. As explained above, a group of the leaders were arrested and charged with harassment. However, more people turned up soon after. I am scared of even googling the group name, as I know that if they tracked me down, it wouldn't end well. I hope you all understand the position I'm in and know that for my family and my own protection, I can't give more than that. I also wanted to say thanks for all the supportive messages. You guys really are the greatest community. Maybe one day, there will be a complete resolution to this and I'll be able to tell the full story to you all. Then someone else commented. Wow, I wonder what happened to the other kids that were there. Were you ever in contact with any of the other kids or their families after this all went down? Surely the police would have intervened at the cult compound and rescued the other kids. Throwaway 181718 replied, We gave the police all the information we could, then agreed to have no part in the further investigation or any of the potential trails. I have no idea what has happened since the police investigation started, but hopefully it was taken down and the kids were okay. Another commenter pointed out that the poster had written Mum and said that they probably weren't in America, then asked, England? Australia? New Zealand? Our throwaway poster said, I didn't want to give away my location, but you're on the right track. The rest of what the original poster said in the comments was pretty basic. Someone suggested they get a gun, and they said that they thought that was excessive, and that they probably couldn't get one in their country anyway. They even said that the entire thing actually did help their depression in a weird way, since they don't focus on petty problems anymore. Then, on February 3rd, 2017, a few days after the original post, throwaway181718 left this comment. This is not true. I was part of a therapy group that specializes in helping teenagers with mental health problems. 
it was not a cult. Since then, I have decided to rejoin the group. I will answer no further questions on this matter. They never posted or commented from that account ever again. They even deleted the original post. Only the comments remain, and in order to see the original, you have to use the Wayback Machine. Was this confession true? I don't know. We usually don't hear about cults this extreme until it's too late, and some real damage has been done. For the sake of all those college kids, I hope it isn't true. What do you think? You know, one thing I've always struggled with is finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. Plus, I am not the best with numbers. But now, I use Rocket Money and it does all that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with a few taps. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month, so I can clearly see my spending habits. Plus, they'll help me create a custom budget and keep my spending on track. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. And I know you do not have the time or mental bandwidth to deal with customer service, but don't worry, they'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash scare you to sleep. That's rocketmoney.com slash scare you to sleep. Rocketmoney.com slash scare you to sleep. Our next story is one of the most tragic chain of events I've ever heard of. It all started in the subreddit Relationships, where people often go for advice on their current, well, relationships. On October 28th, 2016, a user by the name of Jason in Hell submitted a post titled, I'm, 30-year-old male, having a hard time coping with my wife, 29-year-old female, having cheated on me with our neighbor, 51-year-old male. So the TLDR is, by the way, if you don't know what TLDR means, it's too long, didn't read, and a lot of people post it on, it's not just Reddit, a lot of places on the internet, so if you've ever seen that and wondered what it means, it's too long, didn't read, and it's usually a teeny little synopsis of what the entire post is. Anyway, the TLDR is, I caught my wife cheating on me over a year ago. I stayed with her for the sake of our children but I haven't been able to get it off my mind since. It has been 476 days since I confronted her about it. How do I know? Because every time I catch myself thinking about it, I tell myself, it's only been X days. Maybe you won't think about it tomorrow. So, to go back to the beginning, 
I had just taken on a new project and new responsibilities at work. I was working a lot of hours, 60 plus per week, and was noticeably stressed. It was in May of 2015 that I noticed that she had added a password to her phone. When confronted about it, she told me it was because she was planning my Father's Day present and didn't want me to ruin the surprise. About a week later, she came to me and told me that she felt guilty keeping a big secret from me and told me that she was having our neighbor, a contractor, build a home office for me as my present. It struck me as odd, as in our six years together, she had never said she felt guilty about anything and always insists that she never regrets anything in her life. Time goes on, her phone is still password protected and things don't feel right. I see her using her phone and smiling to herself more and more often. But when I ask her what she is doing, she says nothing and puts her phone away. So one morning, I wait for her to get in the shower and I grab her phone before it requires the password. I go through her messages and find that she is texting the neighbor, I am all covered in frosting, you want to lick it off? There were no other messages to the neighbor, but I found out later that was because she had set up her phone to delete messages after a certain amount of time. I felt uncomfortable with it, but I knew she had a perverted sense of humor and I thought she would never do anything to hurt me. More time goes by and the neighbor is spending more and more time at our house, but the office is being completed slower and slower. I can't help but worry that something isn't right, so I start checking her location using Google Timeline. It was at this point that I realized that there are large gaps in her GPS history because she was turning off her phone's GPS. Fast forward to July, and at this point, the paranoia is driving me nuts, so I tell her that I need to install new antivirus on her phone. While she has it unlocked for me, I install anti-theft software so I can remotely turn the GPS back on and set up AT&T message backup and restore so I can read all of her text messages from that point on my computer. The next day, my mother asks to spend time with my two kids, so my wife drops them off with her and has the day to herself. I watch my wife's activity from work as she spends the day trying to meet up with the neighbor, but is unsuccessful because he is busy with another job site. That night, we get the kids back from my mom's house and we go to dinner with the neighbor, his girlfriend, and his son. My wife and his girlfriend are having a good time drinking, laughing, and just joking around. His girlfriend mentions that she would like to see Magic Mike XXL. I say, it's a good idea. I'll watch the kids so my wife and her can go. So my wife and her go and the neighbor and I go back to my house so the kids can play video games together. The kids are back in my son's room playing games and the neighbor is sitting across from me on the other couch. It is at this point that my wife starts texting him. She is describing sex acts she would like to perform with him and he is reciprocating. She tells him to check his Snapchat and at the same time I get a Snapchat from her too and it is her fingering herself in a bathroom stall. They keep talking, trying to figure out when they can meet up and have sex. They decide on Monday morning after I go to work. So in my head, I had already planned to pretend to leave and circle back to catch them. But then they tell each other that they love each other, and it is all I can do not to leap off the couch and knock him out. But I contain myself and continue reading the conversation unfolding in front of me. Then he tells her, you're my girl now, to which she replies, always have been, ending with him writing, and always will be. 
My wife and the neighbor's girlfriend returned from the movie, and I asked them, politely, to sit down. I then asked the kids to stay in my son's room and shut the door. I return to the living room and confront my wife and the neighbor. I say, So, you two love each other, huh? My wife goes into full-blown denial mode, and the neighbor's girlfriend starts smacking him. I ask my wife if she's been texting him. She says no. So, I show her the text messages. She admits to it, but says it was the first time it had gone that far. I ask my wife if she had sent him pictures. She says no. So I show her the picture. She admits it, but says it was the first time. I ask her if she is having sex with him, and she says no. Because I didn't wait to catch them having sex together, I didn't have evidence to prove her wrong, so that one stayed unresolved. I tell her that I'm leaving her. She tells me that she will make sure that I never see my kids again if I do. She's planning on using the fact that I had attempted suicide in high school to prove me unfit to have the children. She continues to say that it was my fault for being so busy with work and stressed out that she just wanted someone she could talk to. Then she gives me an ultimatum to decide what I'm going to do or she will decide it for me. The neighbor's girlfriend starts defending the two of them saying that it couldn't have been serious if they weren't having sex and that my wife and I are too perfect together to let this break us up. The neighbors go home and my wife and I argue for the rest of the night about what we are going to do. We go to bed separately having not resolved anything. We keep going back and forth on the subject all weekend and finally settle on we were going to separate temporarily while we figure out what we want. I was going to stay in the house and she was going to take the kids and go to her mom's house. That Monday, I go to work and I get a text from her in the middle of a meeting with my bosses stating that she explained things to our kids but that they were upset and I need to explain it to them also. I get home from work to find my kids crying. She had told them mommy had to move out because dad was mad at her. When my son wanted to stay with me, she told him he can't. My son put it together that if mommy has to move out because I'm mad at her, and he must move out, that I must have been mad at him too. My daughter was crying because my son was. I don't think she was old enough to understand what was happening. It was at that moment I realized she was going to drag the kids through hell if I left her, so... I swallowed my feelings and begged her to stay. She agreed and insisted that I apologize to the neighbor since we were still going to need to hang out with them because our sons are good friends. I hate it, but I do it anyway. We still hang out with them from time to time and they come to our various birthday and holiday parties, but I do anything for my kids and I behave civil every time. Things die down for a while. I still think about it constantly. I worry how I keep from making her so unhappy that she cheats on me again. Then, almost a year from the original incident, around Father's Day, again, she sends him pictures, again. She claims it was an accident and she meant to send them to me instead. I don't fully believe her, but I move on anyway. Things have been quiet on that front for about four months now, but I still think about it constantly. This is going to sound stupid, but... I feel like I have a part of my brain that I can't shut off, that is always thinking. I used to use that to solve programming problems and it made me very good at my job. But ever since this incident, the only thing it thinks about is her and him and if I did the right thing. My job performance has suffered and I feel like I haven't gotten sleep in months. 
I'm afraid that after this much time and the fact that I begged her back, that to say I want a divorce now would only make her more vindictive towards my children and I. I just feel like I have put myself so deep in a hole that I can never get back out. I haven't really talked to anyone about this. I didn't want to talk to my mom about it because I felt she would treat my wife differently and I didn't need the two fighting any more than they already do. I tried talking to one friend about it, but his advice was to put my trust in God, but that was not much solace for me as I am an atheist. So I have no clue what to do with my feelings or how to move on from this. I honestly think the commenters gave great advice overall. The top comment being, You were trying to navigate this alone, and you should seek counsel ASAP. You should have done this months ago. Your wife's threats should hold no weight until you can get a professional legal opinion on your exposure in a divorce. You won't be doing your children any favors by remaining in a marriage that is now founded on lies, infidelity, and outright bullying. She made you apologize to your neighbor, and you did it? Come on, man. You cannot honestly say that you see any sort of future here that isn't a hell on earth for you. So for your sake and the sake of your children, get to a lawyer ASAP and follow his directions to the letter. So, Jason and Hell came back with a brief update on November 1st, 2016, in a new post titled, Update, I'm Taking Your Advice, where he linked his last post and then added, Instead of trying to fix something she doesn't want to fix. She has refused counseling several times in the past before this even happened. I'm going to get myself and my kids out. I meet with an attorney next week. Thank you, everyone, for helping me see how far I had my head up my ass. A few weeks passed. It seemed like a happy, if not difficult, ending to a tumultuous and toxic marriage. Until November 21st, 2016. The account, Jason and Hell posted one last time. The title of the post was simply, Update. Thank you. He then linked to his two previous posts for clarity and said, I would like to give a heartfelt and sincere thank you for the advice and support I have received here. No one could have foreseen the tragedy that resulted from me filing for divorce. You guys perform a wonderful service to those in need and I hope you continue to do so in the future. He then provided a link to a news article and added, Edit, I would never ask for donations. I think it is incredibly tacky. I've worked very hard for everything I have in life. But, because there has been a GoFundMe created by her family, and I can't guarantee that they won't turn around and use it to support her in some way, I just ask that you help spread the GoFundMe that my employer created for me. And then a link to something called the Tyler Charlie Worley Fund. Let's discuss what was in the article he linked. The victims were Tyler Daniel Clinton Worley, born in 2009, and Charlie Rose Jean Worley, born in 2013. He was seven years old and she was three years old. Brandy married a software engineer, Jason Worley, who we know as Jason in Hell, in August 2009. On November 15, 2016, 14 days after telling Reddit users that he was taking their advice, Jason filed for divorce from Brandy. 
After coming home from the dance performance for their daughter, Brandy Worley went to the Walmart in Crawfordsville, Indiana, under the pretense of needing to buy pipe cleaners for a school project for their son, Tyler. According to Joseph Buser, a prosecutor in the Montgomery County government, Brandy Worley bought the murder weapon, a K-Bar combat knife, at Walmart on November 16th. Coming home, she initially placed the knife in Tyler's bedroom. She told Jason that he could sleep on the couch, but he declined, preferring the basement to her bed or couch. As Jason slept in the basement of their residence, Brandy lured Tyler to Charlie's bedroom, stating there would be a sleepover there. She fatally stabbed the children in their necks and then stabbed herself in her own neck. Brandy murdered her son before murdering her daughter. The daughter woke to hear the repeated stabbings to her brother and asked, What are you doing? In which Brandy told her to go back to sleep. She then repeatedly stabbed her daughter. Finally, Brandy called 911 to report the murders. She stated she took a lot of Benadryl. She was calm and emotionless during the 911 call. She tells the 911 dispatcher that she has already called her mother and that her mother is on her way over. Her mother does not yet realize the events that took place. The 911 dispatcher, initially hoping or believing the call was not legitimate, asked Brandy Worley's mother, who was the victim's grandmother, to check on the welfare of the children. After the mother-in-law found the children dead, her screams caused Jason to rise out of bed. Brandy told Jason, Now you can't take the kids from me. After the funerals, in March 2017, the divorce initiated by Jason Worley became final. Brandy originally pleaded not guilty and had a trial scheduled. In January 2018, Brandy Worley pleaded guilty to murder. On March 19, 2018, Judge Harry Siamas of the Montgomery Circuit Court sentenced Brandy Worley to 65 years for murdering Charlie and 55 years for murdering Tyler giving her a consecutive total of 120 years in prison. Jason stated, All I care is to never see her again, out of sight and out of mind. As of August 2019, Brandy Worley is in Indiana Women's Prison in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jason deleted the entire Jason and Hell account and I had to use the Wayback Machine to find all of the original posts. However, from another now-deleted account, he posted one final update on June 21st, 2018, almost two years after his initial plea for advice. It's titled, An Update from Jason in Hell. TLDR, I am doing better, and I continue to get better every day. The first thing you may notice is this is being posted from a different account. I deleted the Jason and Hell account in a knee-jerk reaction to seeing my Reddit posts in the news. I guess the first question to answer is, how am I doing? And to that I would say, I am doing well. I have bad days, but I would think that is to be expected. It is just important that I, or anyone going through something, continue to use the support of friends and family, as well as good coping skills to not let myself be completely defeated on those bad days. I won't lie. I struggled to get back to where I am. 
For some time, I refused to sleep because of combination of fear of what I would wake up to and nightmares about that night. For a time, I used alcohol to sleep, but my family loved me enough to take it from me before it became a damaging and permanent habit. I was hospitalized because I did have thoughts of ending my life, because I missed my children so much. From that, I learned that you should never be ashamed of your mental health, and not seeking treatment will only make it worse, not better. We have all heard it, but if you or a loved one is struggling, seek immediate assistance. Your life is too important to throw away in a moment of weakness. By putting off treatment, I only caused everything else in my life to suffer. I lost my job and became reclusive to the house. But don't worry, I have been back to work since December and I have nearly regained my former position and salary, so I am good and require no assistance. The second question would be, how do I feel about the sentencing? That is something that is harder to answer, because no matter what the sentence, nothing will bring back my beloved children. Do I think she should have gotten the death penalty, which Indiana has? No, I do not. She wanted to die, and after nine years of giving her what she wanted when she wanted it, I was not going to give her another thing. Do I think the life sentence will have any appreciable effect on her? I don't know. One thing she always stressed for the entire time I knew her was that she lived her life without any regrets. Even after I caught her cheating on me, she continued to say she had no regrets. As for my ex-in-laws, they continue to be a problem to this day. Shortly after everything happened, they changed the locks on the home I was renting from them, with my property still inside. After trying to civilly negotiate the return of the property, it was required that I involve law enforcement. That is an ongoing legal battle. A member of the family accused me of stealing property I had purchased from them prior to the death of the children and threatened to take action against me unless I paid double what I had already paid them. I alerted the authorities, and as far as I know, that is resolved. They continued to make visiting my children's grave difficult. During the one-year anniversary, they sat in their truck and just watched me the whole time I was visiting the grave. Because of that, I don't visit the grave as often as I would like to. If I can impart on you something I have learned through all of this, it is that you should always take the time to be with the ones you love. It doesn't matter if they are asking you to read the pokey little puppy for the millionth time or asking you to play Smash Brothers even though you both know they will wipe the floor with you every time. Just do it. Because you never know what time will be the last time. Always make sure they know how much you love them. I had the fortune that the last thing my children ever heard me say was, I love you. Good night. I will see you in the morning. Going through the comments on this post, there is nothing but love. Most of it consisting of people from all over the country offering to be sentries for Jason against the ex-in-laws so he can visit the children's grave in peace. 
Jason said in another comment that his ex-mother-in-law even mentioned that she wanted to purchase the plot next to the children's graves so that her daughter could be buried with her children someday. In response, Jason purchased both plots on either side of his children's grave so that they wouldn't have to spend eternity with their murderer. Edit, it was actually the subreddit relationship advice, not relationships. Thanks. Well, I know that was incredibly depressing, so let's get a little bit, uh, I don't know, a little bit lighter, I guess. So to end off this episode, I'm going to read to you some creepy comments left on the Ask Reddit subreddit from deleted or throwaway accounts. Just some short, horrifying snippets. This deleted user posted on the question, what is the scariest, unexplainable thing that has happened to you? The most common is the voices phenomenon. You're hiking in the woods, and you hear people talking. You pause, look around, even wait to see if there's someone coming around a switchback. But no one appears. Speaking to other outdoor types, this seems to be a pretty common occurrence. The mountains carry voices better than you'd think. Another time, I was camping in the Shenandoah National Park. Not at a shelter or off the AT, but in the backcountry, a couple of miles from Skyline Drive. The dog tends to growl at every twig snap or woodland creature she thinks she hears. Around 23.30 or so, she abruptly stands up, crawls out of the sleeping bag, looks at the wall of the tent, then crawls back into the sleeping bag. About a minute later, a flashlight abruptly turns on and is pointed at my tent. I hadn't heard anyone walk up, no mean feet, as this was in the late fall after the leaves had fallen off, and I got out my pocket knife to prepare for my roll in a slasher flick. Light turns off, and straining, I tried to hear if the individual was walking off or not, but I never did. A few more times during the night, the dog crawled out and repeated her stare into the night then retreat bit, but the flashlight didn't return. What's creepy about this is that she went with, whoa, I'm going to be quiet about this, when she's growled at bears that have been near our tent before. I'd initially thought that it might have been a park ranger, but if the dog detected the same individual multiple times, I'm now thinking a poacher or axe murderer. On that same thread, another deleted account wrote, Eight years old. Come home from school. Yell up the stairs. I'm home. Mom yells down. Hi, honey. How was your day? Good. Commence watching telly in the living room. Ten minutes later, Mom comes home with the groceries. To this day, the I heard it too creepypasta freaks me the fuck out. And I have the idea that I've got many, many more, but I can't put my finger on them. I vaguely recall that I was flabbergasted at something that I dreamed in detail a week before, stuff like that. It's easier to rationalize and forget things like this than to remember them. It sure helps if you want to sleep at night. This next one comes from the question, Reddit, what is your no-sleep story that actually happened? I've posted this before in a similar thread. For reference, this happened a few years ago. Like most couples, my husband and I have a designated side of the bed. I sleep on the right and him on the left. My comfortable sleep position is laying on my left side and facing the window, away from him. He alternates between facing the bathroom door or me. 
One night, a few weeks back, I'm fighting my sleep. I'm laying on my left side per the norm, but I just can't get comfortable. My neck is sort of sore from laying on my left, so I turn over and face my husband. When I turn over, I am not only faced with my husband's back, but with a large shadow standing over him. Immediately, the shadow stretches to me and somehow communicates for me to turn over. I remember thinking its face was contorted, somehow expressing malice, but I can't for the life of me remember what it looked like. I didn't hear a voice, but the communication was urgent and angry, like it wanted to hurt me. Without thinking, I turned my back around and quickly fall asleep. To be honest, I'm not even sure if I was dreaming. The next morning, my husband and I wake up around the same time and go about our usual routine. I don't say anything because my husband doesn't like to talk about supernatural stuff or the like, which I felt it was. However, this morning is strange and he seems to be uncomfortable. After a lot of prodding, he finally admits he had an awful nightmare. He dreamt a demon was trying to make him do things while he was sleeping. Really evil shit. Wouldn't elaborate. And I woke up during this and the demon attacked me. I didn't tell my husband that I remember the same thing. Only, I wasn't sure if I was asleep. TLDR turned over to face my husband while sleeping, which I never do. Demon shadow got in my face and communicated that I should turn around. I did. Next morning, husband had same dream, but demon was telling him to hurt me slash attack me. And let's end off this episode with a doozy of a deleted user comment. This was posted under the question, what's the creepiest thing that has ever happened to you? I worked for a handful of years in a haunted building. Buildings, to be more exact, as there were two Victorian houses and a carriage house on the property of the museum where I worked as visitor services manager in my 20s. Here's a few creepy highlights in increasing levels of creepiness. Fair warning, this is long. Number one, my office was located in the brick carriage house built in 1872. I was a full-time employee, so I was often there alone when the building and museum were closed to the public. There were always footsteps and other old house-settling noises, so easily disregarded on a sunny day in a building bustling with tourists. But, when you're the only one there, working away at the computer with your back facing the entire lower level, and you constantly hear footsteps walking slowly up to your chair, not so fun. Worse, on one quiet Monday evening, I was closing up and the security guard was in the building with me. I ran upstairs to use the facilities, and while washing my hands, I distinctly heard a man's voice call my name twice from just outside the door. I thought something must be wrong, the guard had come to get me. I whipped open the door to find the landing empty. The security guard was downstairs and had no idea what I was talking about when I asked him if he'd called my name. We then had to search the entire building just in case someone had broken in. But of course, the building was empty. Number two, one evening around 9pm I was in one of the other two buildings on site, a massive Victorian gothic mansion. Most of the staff had stayed late for some community event or other. I had gone up to the second floor to grab some paperwork. The back left corner of the second floor had once been servants quarters but was now staff offices. 
The small seven foot by seven foot rooms that had been deemed appropriate as maids' quarters wholly lent themselves to cramped and crowded individual offices for the grants managers and community relations lady. As I was walking by the teensy dark hallway that led to the teensy dark offices, I heard a breathy exchange between two female voices and then laughter. Though I couldn't hear what had been said, the laughter that followed was clear as a bell. I thought my coworkers must be up to something or trying to play a joke, so I started down the hallway towards the closed door, from behind which I could still hear laughter. As I reached for the knob, all the hairs stood up on my arm as I realized with absolute certainty that I was the only one upstairs. I had seen all my coworkers downstairs right before I'd come up the stairs. The laughter stopped abruptly, and I scurried away. Number three. We were featured on the TV show Ghost Hunters, and to play off the possible increase in visitation, we put together an after-hours ghost tour. Being a social justice museum, we couldn't really make it too creepy, and it unfortunately ended up heavy-handed and educational. Regardless, the main house, which belonged to a 19th century author in her later years, had seen its fair share of tragedy and strangeness and even towing a strict mission-related content line, we were able to make the tour somewhat engaging. Also, the house is something out of nightmares. Dark woodwork, velvet everywhere, fully decorated just as it had been when the famous owner had lived and died there some 120 years ago. So anyway, we're taking a group through on a normal night and we're using a digital voice recorder. I know, I know, silly. In one of the upstairs bedrooms, a young man named Thomas Ryder had visited in the 1870s and had died suddenly under suspicious circumstances. People had often reported seeing a man in dark clothes looming in the shadows on the second floor during daytime hours. So in that room, we would always ask, Thomas Ryder, are you here with us tonight? Okay, again, I know, campy. Myself and the other tour guide do our whole rigmarole. The guests are properly creeped out. We close up the house and grounds and head home for the night. I live about 45 minutes away from the museum. I was driving past this little pond in my little town where it's very, very dark. And suddenly I hear my own voice loud in my car. Thomas Ryder, are you here with us tonight? I almost crashed into the pond. It was a matter of a foot or so. When I finally managed to shakily put my truck in park... I sat there for several seconds, listening hard to the silence in the cab. I looked behind me, behind the seats, I was alone in the car, and then I realized I had accidentally brought the digital voice recorder home with me. Simple explanation, though strange that it had skipped five tracks forward to the middle of a track, played that one sentence, and then promptly shut itself off again. There's actually one more story that's much creepier but I feel like I've been writing for ages. If anyone would like to read it, let me know, and I'll type it up too. Edit. Okay, here's the creepiest thing that happened to me while I work there, posted below because I've apparently exceeded the word count. Part 2. It had been an exceptionally boring day, as most were, working at an ill-attended museum. All told, I think we'd sent a total of one tour with one visitor and their disinterested college student tour guide through the house, I had spent most of the day staring longingly at googled pictures of Robert Pattinson on the computer behind the front desk. As I said, this was a while ago, 
my tastes have improved. It was before the clock's spring forward for the season, so it was nearing dark before closing, and the deep cloud cover and persistent drizzle didn't improve the ambient lighting. Seated at the front desk in the poorly stocked gift shop, I sent my two remaining tour guides in to close the house for the night, which involved switching off lights, switching others on, shutting some doors, and opening yet others, apparently all to ensure the house burned in a particular manner were that a blaze took it in the night, or to set up some specifically encouraged path for robbers who managed to ninja sneak past the security system to steal tired velvet upholstered settees and ugly faded lithographs. So the two tour guides were in the house and I was stationed at the front desk on the main floor of the 1872 carriage house. Directly above me was a lofty attic space used as merchandise and junk storage of the type only museums seem to accumulate because everyone should save the posters from the 1994 mother-daughter tea fundraiser just in case. Above me and to the right was the guide break room complete with crappy folding table and chairs, microwave, and multiple boxes and crates of books, educational material, and related. Downstairs in the gift shop, on my desk was an old handset landline phone that could dial out but could also, with the press of an aptly labeled guide room button, reach the room above on speakerphone so that I might call up and announce a pending tour or yell at them or sing, though I don't think I ever did sing to the guides up there. I was just finishing up considering what color Robert Pattinson's eyes might be in candlelight when I started to hear the most disconcerting racket coming from the guide break room. It sounded very much like a person of considerable girth lifting heavy objects, carrying them to the other side of the room, and then unceremoniously dumping them out, stomping the entire time. This continued for perhaps 30 seconds, and I recall the thought that drifted up through my confusion and irritation was, that sounds urgent, as if the person was doing whatever it was they were doing as fast as possible. Anyway, I was pissed, and no one should have been up there. I called up on the speakerphone and said something like, what the hell are you doing? And no one answered. So I went with the classic fallback of, hello? 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 And then my voice died in my throat as I listened. I could hear him slash her slash it moving clearly through the speakerphone, picking things up, shoving things, dropping things, and then I heard it come up to the desk where the phone sat. I could hear it breathing breathing hard and moving things on the desk, papers, maybe even the phone. It was at that moment that I realized that not only had I seen both my tour guides leave to close the adjacent house, confirming that I was indeed alone in the building, but that I could see all unlocked doors from my seat, and no one had come in since their departure. I immediately radioed our well-meaning security guard, who happened to be standing just outside the front door of the carriage house in the misty yuckness of the evening. God knows why he wasn't inside where it was much warmer. He went straight up the stairs upon my call. I watched him march up the first set of stairs and then listened as he turned at the landing and walked up the last handful tentatively. I held my breath, waiting for him to open the door and then heard no more sounds. Rod? 
What's up there? Rod? Who's up there? But there was no one. He came back down the stairs, looking at me a bit owlishly, as I had insisted there was someone up there. The room had been empty, and nothing had been touched, save a pile of freshly crumpled paper in the center of the table. At this point, my guides, having heard the ruckus on the radio, returned from closing the house. They swore up and down that when they'd left, nothing had been amiss, that they had not crumpled the paper. There had been a stack of neat new paper on the center of the table when they'd gone to close up. I won't lie, I was shaken by it. I grew up in old houses and have worked in the historical field my entire adult life, so I've encountered a few odd and inexplicable things over the years. This was much scarier. After we'd finished closing up the visitor center for the day, I knew I would be returning to an empty house, and that thought was just too much to bear. I instead sat in the parking lot of the local grocery store until my husband finished work. I have no idea what I heard up in that room, who walked up to the phone and was so frantically moving unseen objects, but I know with absolute certainty that it was not good, and that it was angry. The oral history that had been passed down from guide to guide for generations of museum employees spoke of a young man, a stable hand, who had hanged himself in the building at the end of the 19th century. But most museums have a story like that, and it's likely not true. Whatever this was, I sincerely hope I don't meet it again. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this little off-the-beaten-path episode. I enjoy doing them and sharing some of my other spooky interests with you. As a bonus for me, after each one, I usually get a few messages expanding on that week's topic, and I love it. You guys are always sending me really cool stuff that has to do with lighthouses or time slips, and oh my god, it's the best. I've gotten a lot of requests to do a few more time slips or haunted lighthouse episodes, and if I can get together enough material, I definitely will. For this week, I will leave links to my resources in the show notes, not shore notes, show notes for this episode so you can read these on your own and explore the comments further if you'd like. On to Patreon shoutouts. This week, I'd love to thank Rachel and Ariana Stewart. Thank you both so much. Sending you love and light and happiness. Remember, you can follow the show on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, Facebook, and of course, Reddit. Now that you know how anonymous Reddit can be, please follow the Scare You to Sleep subreddit and leave me some creepy shit. <laughs> you can send all of your submissions for the show to scareyoutosleep at gmail.com. I've been toying with the idea of putting out prompts for scary stories and then this might... I don't know how to word this without being confusing, but I would put out a prompt for a scary story, then feature the top two or three of each story I get from each prompt and have kind of a cool themed episode or different themed episodes. You know, like I would put out like a phrase that you would have to use in your story or a topic. And um, then for that episode, just feature the my favorite two or three that I get. Um, Let me know if you guys would be into that. I think it would be kind of fun. Well, I think that's all for tonight. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams.
Item number SCP-5186. SCP-7160. SCP-7533. Object class Euclid. Keter. Safe. Special containment procedures. Spreading across the hemisphere and kicking up vast amounts of ash and dust. <laughs> the only thing I could hear was 7219 <laughs> laughing. Do you remember your name? Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. I feel them again. Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. They're in my ears! Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. Nobody understands! SCP Archives is a weekly fiction podcast. Each episode, we dive into the strange, the unknown, and the... Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at scparchives.com.